Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing cartography, interactive media, and what happens when we watch the world on our individual screens. Our guest is Dr. Jason Farman. He's a professor at the University of Maryland College Park, where he's the director of the Design Cultures and Creativity Program and a faculty member with the Human Computer Interaction Lab. He's the author of the books, Delayed Response, The Art of Waiting from the Ancient to the Instant World and Mobile Interface Theory. He has also edited two books, The Mobile Story and Foundations of Mobile Media Studies. His work has been featured in The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, NPR, Atlas Obscura, Elle Magazine, and others. Jason, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I want to start by asking you about these research interests. Um, what is it that are you um, most concerned with? Why does it interest you? Why is it an important area for us to study? For my work, I am most interested in thinking about how we as people and our bodies interact with the spaces around us uh, and how media changes that. Uh, so when you enter a space how you can transform that space, how our social interactions really dictate what meaning that space takes on. And then when you add media to that, how do media really transform the spaces we move through, whether it be your neighborhoods, your schools, your house, um, religious buildings, sites of historical importance, all of those spaces that are really meaningful for us as individuals and as communities. Uh, how do we shape those spaces? Uh, how do they shape who we are? Uh, our own sense of embodied um, encounters with the world. Um, and then ultimately how we can use media to transform the ways those spaces take on meaning. So today we're discussing your article, Mapping the Digital Empire, Google Earth and the Process of Postmodern Cartography which was published in the journal New Media and Society, volume 12 in 2010. Um, can you give us a brief history of this um, article? Like when you, how did the idea come about? When you began working on it? And how did the ideas change in the process of, of researching and, and writing? Yeah. So it was a really bizarre pathway that led me to my current work and to this article, uh, interestingly. I started working on it in grad school. Um, I was in the School of Theater, Film, Television at UCLA uh, when I was doing my PhD there, uh, mostly studying performance art, uh, theater, live performance, those kinds of things. Um, and I was really interested in the human body on the stage uh, and how the ways that uh, we represented the spaces that performance took place on uh, really shaped the performance itself. Uh, and then after I finished my PhD, I started really noticing, uh, you know, how people were using mobile devices to do something very similar. They were using mobile media to give meaning to their space. Uh, and Ultimately, I saw a lot of the things that were happening on the performance stage happening in everyday life. It was out in the world. We were using maps. We were using digital maps to really encounter the world, move through it. And what I was interested in is how that really reoriented us in interesting ways to the spaces we moved through. Uh, the ways that we represent the space shapes how we use that space. Uh, so it was this really interesting journey to go from art and the ways that artists decided to represent space, whether it be the live 
stage in a theater or even performance art happening out on the street uh, to the ways that companies are representing the spaces we move through uh, using our digital media and really opening up what the possibilities are for how we use those spaces, how we even think about them and, and uh, give them meaning and significance. Uh, so it was kind of that pathway that led me to working on mapping. I was really interested in how we represent the world around us. Right. So as, as you point out, the, this idea of the media that we use to represent the space uh, influences how we think of that space and what to do with it. And this definitely related to, to mapping, right? So you, you know that there's been changes in the history of mapping uh, from sort of an art of map making mm -hmm. and then the advent of what is called sort of the science of cartography, right? right? right. Um, can, you, can you point to some of the significant changes in these different practices from maps as, as art processes to the sort of science or um, scientific ideal of cartography? Um, especially thinking about authorship or the objectivity mm -hmm. of, of these representations. Right, right. Yeah, so when you begin to think about the um, colonial uh, process of exploration, you know, people getting in ships and traveling to unknown lands and then sketching out those coastlines as they encounter them, you know, it's this very embodied act. It's, it's here we are, we know where we are in comparison to the stars. It, you know, it, it definitely uses navigation and... Uh, location in, in scientific and interesting ways, but it is about your body moving along this coastline and, and saying, here I am in relationship to this landmass, uh, and I'm going to sketch it out, and I'm charting out the unknown, and I'm going to bring that back, and this is going to radically transform how the world thinks of itself. It's going to see this picture of the world, and it's going to change how the world imagines its shape, what's what's out there, what are the possibilities, who's out there, what landmasses are there. Uh, and then you shift into computerized versions of this. Um, and really what you see all the way up through, you know, the satellite view in Google Maps that you use on your phone right now is more and more the human body is distanced from the act of cartography. Now, it's not about that human, you know, sketching the coastline out. It's about this satellite or... Um, plane flying over a region taking photographs of it and it's capturing in real time what this planet looks like at this moment. So the human body is pretty much uh, understood to be distant from that act. Uh, it's a it's a act done by machines, you know. Uh, and so what we see in that is that the idea of error is more and more removed from the map. That we imagine that the map is very objective that it is it's just this static image of the world what how could that be political you know how in the world can a map be political if it's captured by satellite photography that's what the world looks like you know objectively that is what the world looks like right now so how can that be a political act um and this is i think where the article begins to intervene is to say actually how we represent things is always a political act um even in the objective photographs taken by a satellite how they are used by us uh, and the platforms through which they're distributed are, are very much uh, how uh, we still face uh, maps as a political object that achieve certain ends. Uh, and that, I think, is really uh, an interesting journey where you have the removal of the human being in the map making process. At least, you know, seemingly you have the capturing of these land masses more and more 
automated, uh, but the colonial process inherent in both uh, has never been removed. You know, the act of colonization of power using imagery to maintain or reiterate power, uh, you just see more and more um, as, as we kind of move across these eras, maps and uh, colonialism or maps and power really do go hand in hand, uh, regardless of how they're captured. Yeah, for sure. There's still a uh, political representation, regardless of whether the, the main medium was the, the human body just sketching uh, or more recently, the, the computer or the satellite mm, yeah. uh, creating that image, right? But as one of the things you point out is we're now used to seeing Google Maps on our phone um, or on our computers, but there's actually a longer history of computer-enabled mapping, right? There's half a century of computer-enabled right. mapping. And so can you tell us some brief, um, sort of a brief history or the main points and change from, say, from the 1950s um, when computer-enabled mapping mm -hmm. began to where we are today, or, and you point in there things like MapQuest became right. significant turning points, mm -hmm. um, and then we get to things like GIS technologies right. as well, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and GIS coming a bit before. So you have um, what's um, many argue is the first uh, geographical information system uh, with the Canada Geographic Information System, and that's the mid-1960s that that comes out. Um, and you have a lot of people similarly around the era using computers and maps to do census data to, to map out census information in the 1960s uh, as well. Um, and it's interesting to see then that all the way up through, you know, the mid 90s with the launch of the first um, website that allows us to map out our, our journeys uh, through MapQuest, um, you have a process where the act of creating the map is, is again, using tools that help automate it, uh, that help take you know, these abilities for digital representation to go in and, and really streamline what cartographers were doing. Uh, also, in, I direct a design program at the University of Maryland, and we talk about similar processes uh, when it comes to design, where you had people doing things by hand, like creating letters or even letter press, you know, or creating posters using paint and stick on letters. And then that all becomes automated with computers where now we're using Photoshop, we're using Adobe Illustrator. The, a similar kind of track happened with mapping where you had people who were very skilled in hand-drawn maps. Uh, and then these tools then move on to the computer and it, and it begins to transform what's possible with these maps. Uh, the kinds of data you can represent. You can represent multiple kinds of data. You can say, here's what this map looks like if we consider these factors. And then if you remove these factors, let's look at that representation. And it all happens seamlessly through this map. Uh, so it speeds up the process, but also gives you the ability to represent a wider range of possibilities, a wider range of data uh, on that particular map uh, once it becomes computerized. So the the bulk of the article is focusing on on, on google earth right um and one of the things that you argue is uh, google earth's charting of the globe into this interactive web-based gis is inherently connected to the desire to map out a new territory which you call the digital empire mm -hmm. um can you elaborate on this sort of connection that you're drawing between the the aims of google earth and google's aims broadly yeah yeah absolutely 
And this was interesting for me writing this article was to think about the nation state and the power of the nation in exercising power over its people or power over others. Uh, and as Hart and Negri, uh, scholars who had argued in their um, book on empire that empire looks very different now in the digital age um, because you have sort of this mixture of nations and corporations. You have these transnational corporations like Google, uh, like Facebook, like Microsoft that uh, exert tremendous power over our lives. Uh, and Hart and Negri would go so far as to say that the nation state is diminished in power and actually we're uh, corporations like Google are the ones who are wielding the power uh, these days. Um, so when I begin saying that Google is interested in mapping the digital empire, it is about that shift. It's about what empire means in the digital age and how Google becomes the main source of knowledge. And, and they become the main gateway for everything we need online. Uh, and when it comes to things like mapping even, uh, mapping the physical world, they have become the default network for that. Uh, and what they do actually has real world ramifications. There was an interesting example that came up um, maybe about uh, eight, eight or nine years ago when um, there was a contested border um, between Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And Google had actually mismapped it, uh, and they mapped it as um, Nicaraguan territory. Uh, and Costa Rica doesn't have a standing army. So uh, what happened was Nicaragua said, here is this space that Google has mapped. And they sent armies into that space and occupied it. And they used Google as the source for that. Well, this is what Google is saying. This is our space. Uh, right. And it became sort of this international incident that was predicated on how Google decided to map uh, the world. And it's interesting to, I've just been keeping tabs on these since I wrote this article uh, in 2010. So over the last decade, there's just moment after moment where you see these decisions that are happening where Google makes choices that have real world ramifications. Um, and the, the other one that really stood out to me was how the, how Google responded to Brazil, uh, when during the Rio games, uh, in 2016, when, uh, Brazil and, and Rio specifically put a request into Google to remove all of the favelas from Google mm -hmm. maps. They said, anybody mm -hmm. who's going to come to Rio is going to look on Google maps that all they're going to see is favelas. Like, right. uh, we're worried that they're going to just come in and be terrified. You know, here are all these, but like all Rio is is favelas and you're misrepresenting the space. Can you fix it? Mm -hmm. uh, and I've kind of gone back and forth with a lot of people about that, uh, where, where they did eventually, if you go into Rio now, it, it does not show the number of favelas that they, they had uh, prior to 2016. And for me, when you lose that representation of people in poverty, um, it's they it's this out of sight out of mind moment where they have yeah. literally lost representation uh, Google no longer represents them so who does who represents these people um, some people have said well isn't it more accurate isn't it a more accurate map now that all the favelas uh, have been taken away because Rio is not just all favelas um, and I'll say my response to that is it depends on on whose perspective you're asking, you know, and this right. is kind of the key with maps. It is about perspective. It's not simply about objective reality. If you live in a favela, Rio is favelas, you know, um, yeah. and now they're not, they're not even on the map. Um, so 
whose perspective does a map represent, I think is really key. Uh, and Google decides those things. And it has implications for a country like Nicaragua and Costa Rica uh, and for you know somebody living in poverty in a favela in, in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, so how a corporation decides to represent the world has real world ramifications for just an everyday human being, you know, and how that person, um, how their poverty is dealt with, for example. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I'm, I'm referencing the digital empire. It's those kinds of questions, I think, that drive this piece. Yeah, for sure. And as you point out, it's about the the say the figurative representation on the map also becomes an analog for political representation. If uh, the people living in the favelas are no longer seen, then they will no longer be accounted for or That's acknowledged, right. yeah. and and they will lose that political agency in some way, as well. And also, as you um, zero in, part of the the issue, the central issue with maps is the question of perspective, right? Whose perspective is this map showing? Right. And so this, I think, this is really where something like media studies helps come in to, to think about these things. Because one, two of the things that you, you reference in the article are one, uh, theories of the gaze, right? Yeah. Which uh, we import from, from film studies mm -hmm. into media studies. Um, and then science and technology studies, someone like Haraway talking about positionality. Right. Um, could, could you elaborate a little on this on how these, these sort of two ideas or two theories help uh, interrogate this question of perspective and how it relates to maps? Yeah, great. You know, the, the ramifications of really centering our studies on the visual are far reaching uh, when it comes to issues of representation, but then also uh, issues of um, objectification, but also for like Haraway, when you center the visual, you, you know, by decentering the rest of your body, it, it becomes that the visual becomes this stand-in for this godlike objectivity. Uh, and that's where maps come in, is, is that when, when you center the visual and give it the objective nature of, this was, this was not taken by a human being. This photograph that you're looking at, this satellite image was taken by a machine. It becomes this objective godlike view of this is, this is reality uh, without really questioning well, how is that reality received by different people? You know, how do people see this differently? We don't all encounter visual media the same. We bring to it uh, our histories, our cultures. Visual media are very much impacted by who we are and our encounters. Um, but what's what's I think really interesting is that that is not sort of the the that's not common sense. You know, that we all yeah. encounter visual media differently and it, it resonates with us in very different kinds of ways based on who we are, our cultures, our genders. Um, and this this is why I'm really interested in maps as well. It points to a larger issue that is really worth studying broadly, both within media studies and without it, is that often the things that seem to be common sense are often the most dangerous. When you approach something and you say, well, why are you even, that's, why are you questioning this? It, it's common sense. There's no, there's no debate here. You know, this mm -hmm. is just how it is. When you find those moments where people say, well, this is just how it is. This is, this is real life. This is just reality. This is, uh, this is a, the objective truth. Um, then I think you can really begin to dig into that and to see power being exercised in, right. in really profound ways. Um, people like um, Antonio Gramsci have argued that 
hegemony or sort of the exercising of power over other people is mostly done not through force, you know, by beating people down, beating people into submission. It's done through coercion. It's done through ways that are nonviolent, seemingly nonviolent, through simply getting people on board with accepting this as reality, that this is an unchangeable way that just this is just the way things are. Um, So when you unearth the common sense of things, I think you can really pinpoint moments of power and how power is exercised over people just through common sense. Uh, Maps are are a part of that. Yeah, for sure. As as you point out, the, the, the value of critical thinking is unearthing how power is operating even when we we don't acknowledge it or we're not thinking about it right yeah. uh, once you think of something as common sense it it sort of maps and maps uh, it yeah. it papers over those yeah. kinds of things right? yeah absolutely i i would say more so than others um, you know it it we when we begin to um be able to identify it and kind of build up our own analytical toolkit to look around us. And, and there are things that outrage us. I think 2020, you know, is this year where we are outraged, you know, there's so much mm-hmm. going on in the world that we want to change. Um, we see obvious discrepancies of power. We see powerlessness all around our country and world. Uh, right. We see people um, being oppressed, uh, killed. It, it's, you know, this year really highlights the struggles toward equality, um, toward identifying moments of oppression. Um, and I think in order to really move the needle on these issues, we also need to be able to say, well, we see these things, these are visible, uh, and they're coming to light more and more. What are the underpinnings that mm-hmm. allow all of this inequity to happen that we're not talking about? What is the common sense that is actually the foundation of something like racism, for example, that most right. people just it's not on their radar. It's you know, we can see issues of racism and police brutality, police killings, for example. What is the basis on which those lie? What's the common sense on which that perpetuates? You know, uh, that's kind of the work that I encourage uh, my students to do and and that I try to do myself as well is to think that it's this thing is actually a part of a much larger structure of issues and much of that we just accept uh, as common sense just a part of daily life Uh, and visual media actually I think are a really fundamental part of that Um, when we think about how the world is represented uh, who gets represented how they get represented who gets heard uh, in what ways do we um, just imagine spaces and the people in those spaces? Uh, how do we, you know, encounter the world around us? How is it represented? Uh, a lot of that is really just built on uh, common sense notions that perpetuate inequity. Um, and and I think visual media and media studies very broadly can really make some important interventions toward making the world a better place. Ultimately, when we learn how to build that toolkit and share that with others and really transform how how the world is represented ultimately yeah i i agree um i think that's part of the 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 value of what we're doing here I yeah think, broadly and in, yeah. in our fields and in our classes right yeah, absolutely uh, and in in the case of maps you note that for part of this common sense is the idea that this is an objective perspective um and in that way erase the very subjective um, elements of who built the map and for mm. which purposes yep, yep. and what uh, 
who is in what kinds of power relations it is uh, sort of taping over. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then when you focus on Google Earth, you notice that there's in some way, even within the platform, a way to start doing this questioning, right? Or um, pushing back on the common sense assumptions of what Maps does. Right. Um, and two of the elements that you point out are there's like a, the bulletin board system and then the use of overlays yeah. as tools that users can then rely on to, to push back. Right. You, could you talk to us more about these these tools and then sort of the potentials that you can see yeah. in them and the limitations? Yeah. So the first part, I think, links back to, a, to what I talked about with the shift toward digital maps in general. Uh, once you're able to create overlays, uh, you can create... You can change the map ultimately. You know, you can literally go into Google Earth and create your own uh, overlay where the map takes on what you decided to put on top of it. Um, so you could create kind of a set of data. You could create something artistic. Uh, you can just change the representation uh, yourself. So digital media allow us to go in and, and give a, a wide range of visualizations of something we see, you know, we've seen our whole lives in the classroom, you know, growing up in elementary schools, you have the Mercator map up on the wall, mm -hmm. we can change that visualization, uh, we can add to it, we can augment it. Uh, and alongside that, you can have dialogue about it. So I think the key shifts as well are you had prior to this really a single map maker, or at least a single mapping corporation that distributed maps. Now we can make the maps and we can debate about the maps. Uh, we are the map makers uh, and we can say, this is the kind of way I want to represent the world. This is the way I want to represent my city, uh, my town. I'm going to give you this kind of visualization. So, and here you're, you're getting into uh, a sort of area that media studies thinks a lot about, which is how uh, digital media or mobile media allows for uh, levels of interactivity, mm -hmm. right? And what that interactivity does. And so if, if I were to reductively point, put this, um, there's sort of the two sides of thinking about, well, now this interactivity allows us to do all these other things that we couldn't with a more centralized sort of media making mm -hmm. or map making. Right. Um, and so that that has its, its potentials. Um, and the other side thinking about, sure, but you're still relying on these technologies yeah. that are created by a corporation, right? So it's still the master tools, it's still Google's yes. empire, and we're all just, just playing in it. Yeah. Um, where do you come down on thinking it through these positions and how do, how do we approach that, that question of interactivity? Right. Yeah, it is a really valid argument to say, okay, these people are having debates in Google Earth, but it's still Google. You know, Google is still hosting it. Uh, they're running it. It's Google Maps. It doesn't diminish Google's power uh, at all. Um, and from my perspective, when it comes to interactivity, and and I guess before I get into that, the this is kind of a rich debate in game studies as well, uh, which you might get into at some point. Um, and but I, I think. You know the the ideas around what is an interactive game. You know mm -hmm. uh, what what constitutes interactivity within a game that you're playing. When it comes down to it, it's an illusion because everything that you do that you perceive as freedom within the game is actually something that somebody coded. They decided you could do that to begin with. Uh, so right. it's not true interactivity. It's simply you're exercising the abilities that the game already has built within it, that a coder decided you could do that in the game so you can do it. Um, yeah. I mean, anybody who's playing Animal Crossing, you know, this, this summer, uh, for example, as soon as you were able to swim, 
you know, like, it's just weird that you couldn't swim up until like a month ago, you know, in the game right. and you're on an island, you know, <laughs> but all of a sudden the, the designers, the game designers decided to release, you know, an update that allowed you to go in the water. So it's that sort of thing where the interactivity, your ability, your freedom is, is totally predicated on what the authors of that decided you could do to begin with. So Google built in a bulletin board system. They built in... Uh, the ability to do overlays they gave you the freedom to do these things so is it really freedom you know is it really interactivity yeah. um for me the way i come down on that is that um i actually believe that um the ways that we enact revolution is by what i call creative misuse of existing tools um mm -hmm. so i don't think revolution actually comes from dismantling systems I think mm -hmm. it is by taking those systems and misusing them in a way that radically transforms what they mean. Uh, so uh, in the article, uh, I point to terms um, like determinant or uh, the one that I'm more interested in is bricolage, where you bring together pieces that were never meant to go together. And when you put them next to each other and you begin using them, uh, it's, it's this level of creative misuse that completely transforms what you can do uh, using existing tools. Um, for example, there was um, there's a artist named Joseph Delap, and he did this uh, he did this piece in the video game uh, America's Army, where he went in as a player on you know America's side to go fight. And he didn't shoot the weapon or anything. What he did in the chat option within America's Army, he typed out uh, the name of every soldier killed in the Iraq war. Um, so for him, mm -hmm. it was this demonstration uh, within a system, within a game that was meant to kind of glorify combat. Uh, and instead it became a memorialization to lives lost uh, in the Iraq war. Uh, right. And it's misusing the game as a way to highlight uh, the loss of war, uh, for example. Uh, and so by creative mis creatively misusing things by putting things together that that were really never meant to go together uh, i think you create windows to begin dismantling systems of power uh, rather than simply flipping hierarchies you know one one could say that by dismantling those who are in power you're simply putting in a different power system you're replacing one power mm -hmm. system with another how do you get rid of those kinds of hierarchies to begin with. And, and I think one right. way to do that is to begin to misuse the tools at hand to begin to imagine new futures. Uh, and that's what I see happening here with uh, the bulletin board systems or the overlays is that people are taking them and using them in really interesting ways, uh, in ways that were not anticipated by Google. Uh, and that I right. think is really key. You're, you're misusing the system in such a way that you're drawing attention to the to the fact that first you can do that, and second, it gives you then access to critique the tool that you're using. You can actually critique the tool by using the tool. Right, and it, as the the flip side of thinking about well, is interactivity just a, because the author allowed you to do that? In some way, the author's setting certain parameters on how you can interact with the piece of media, let's say, as also in some ways, they're giving up some of that That's control, right? Because right? yeah. then you can take it up creatively yep. and use it in ways that wasn't intended. Exactly. And, 
start pushing at it a lot more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think there's a ton of potential there. Uh, yeah, and once that's published, once it's put in your hands, how users decide to use these things, I think, is uh, creating uh, avenues for us to to radically reimagine how these platforms exist. Anyway, and I guess the the problem that we face. So this is called often called by people. It's called tactical media. Uh, Rita, Rita Rayleigh right. has a book called Tactical Media. Um, thinking about how media themselves become uh, tools for us to, you know, for uh, political uprising or, or you know, fighting against uh, privacy issues and Facebook or mm -hmm. something along those lines. Um, so, you know, thinking about how we, you know, create, sort of engage creative misuse or bricolage, one of the ramifications of this as well is is that your process of, doing that is often taken up by the very corporation where they say, hey, that's actually a really good way of doing things. We're going right. to co-opt that and, and build it into our system. Uh, the, uh, the example I like to point to a lot is uh, uh, Twitter's hashtags. When Twitter mm -hmm. first began, they didn't have hashtags as a part of the system. It was a user invented uh, way of organizing information. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. As we went on to Twitter in its very early days, a lot of people said, how do we find each other? How do we archive this? How do we organize uh, in this space? And they started using hashtags, which Twitter said, hey, that's a great idea. We're gonna start using that. And now the hashtag is basically a logo for Twitter. You know, if you see a hashtag yeah. somewhere, you kind of immediately associate it with Twitter, but that was a user invented tool. So right. a lot of our acts of resistance are sometimes co-opted uh, by the very systems we're trying to uh, upend. But uh, the, the sort of, back and forth between these tactical approaches of creative misuse and, and sort of corporate power over us is an ongoing process. It's never settled. It's something we always have to engage as we're trying to rethink how we use these technologies in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I think the ongoing process part is is, is key in yeah. thinking we're, we're not going to get to that point where we're like, we've done it. We've, we've broken down the machine yeah. and it, it works. You, you keep struggling because the machine can uh, rethink and reappropriate the the creative yeah. resistance that you, you put to it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. For sure. Um, one one of the things as I was rereading this this year that struck me is to this was published in 2010. Uh, so even if you were writing it just before that, uh, Google Earth at the time was mostly desktop based. Mm -hmm, right. Correct? Yep, it was. Yeah. And so it's been 10 years since. Um, how, has it changed? Um, do you see different potential limitations in Google Earth as it exists today? Right. Um, and especially thinking about all the new media that has come out since, right? Like VR, mm -hmm. yep. uh, mobile versions, and so on and so yeah. forth. How, how has Google Earth uh, come down now? Well, I think one of the major shifts that has taken place over the last 10 years is just the computing power of our mobile devices has transformed in really profound ways. And so most of the functions we were doing on our desktop in 2010 can be done on a mobile device uh, at this point in time. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think most of the ways that we are using our mobile devices um, have by and large made something like a desktop version of Google Earth, um, you know, in some ways obsolete, that we're now doing it on our devices. And we're not only doing it on our devices, we're doing it in situ. You know, we're doing it in the place. We're, we're mapping that place while we're standing in the place. We're giving visualizations right. while we're there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you end the article also pointing to um, this question of access, right? So assuming that just because there are these 
um, elaborate tools, digital tools that we have, doesn't mean that everyone has access to them, right? right? So it's also a political issue, not only in can the people in the favelas be represented or not in the map, but also do the people in the favelas have access to the internet to be using the tool in resistant or creative ways, um, like someone who doesn't live in the favela. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think with mobile devices, what has happened is, you know, you see access being... Uh, barriers to access being crossed in ways that we didn't really anticipate. You know, the access to mobile devices is so pervasive on a global scale. You know, there are more mobile phones than there are toothbrushes or toilets in the world. You know, it's uh, the scale of global proliferation of mobile devices is extraordinary. And and people have access to to the internet, uh, you know, in in a wide range of... uh, you know, bandwidth speeds uh, through their mobile devices, but it is it is pervasive. Uh, what we see, though, in a couple of outcomes of that is, in one regard, you have poor communities relying on mobile devices and don't have kind of these uh, desktop computers or laptops that might be able to to do things that a mobile device can't, uh, that you don't really mm-hmm. want to do on a mobile device, like write a book, you know, or, <laughs> you know, deal with spreadsheets and things uh, you know things that you would want to do on a computer you don't have access to even uh doing long readings or accessing homework um in prince george's county where the university of maryland is for example um which uh is predominantly predominantly black and african-american uh you know different socioeconomic classes than a neighboring city like bethesda where many of the high school students in prince george's have mobile devices they all have smartphones but that's their main device you know that's all they have they don't have the money to have both a laptop and a mobile phone so that means they are accessing homework they're accessing job applications they're accessing most of their world through that tiny interface and so they get a less robust uh window into the world uh, where they have fewer options because they've got one option you know you've got you've got the money to be able to afford this data plan you don't have internet at home maybe you don't have uh, you know, a laptop at home. So everything comes to the mobile device. Uh, and, and so access is being crossed in some really interesting ways on a global scale. But I think the, um, the consequences of that are, are really interesting, uh, that, that it is a, it is predominantly a, a mobile internet world out there, but what that means for different communities is, is, uh, has larger ramifications for for how those people interact with media and and i guess one final point along these lines that's really worth making is that a term like the digital divide argues that you know there is this gap between people who have access to technology and people who don't Uh, and when something like a mobile device bridges that gap but people don't succeed on the other side of that gap there they are often blamed you know like hey you've got a tool you've got you're in Prince George's County, you've got a mobile device. Why aren't you getting straight A's? You know, you've got access to the technology um, and it doesn't really recognize the larger structure, larger structural barriers that keep people in poverty, for example, uh, or yeah. keep different nations uh, poorer than first world nations or, you know, things along those lines. So 
um, the digital divide as a term kind of assumes that once the divide is bridged, that equity happens, but it doesn't actually happen that way. And I think mobile devices point to that. We've got mobile devices just are pervasive across the planet, but poverty continues to abound and sort of the wage gap, the, the, the wealth gap globally continues to expand. The, the, the fact that people have mobile devices doesn't fix the problems. It gives people new access to knowledge and new access to opportunities, but by no means is it breaking down those structural barriers to social mobility uh, that, that many people had hoped, I think, uh, would happen. Yeah, for sure. And it easily transposes, as you point out, the wealth issue to just having or not having a mobile device. But if there are more mobile devices than toothbrushes or toilets in the world, that means some people might have a mobile device, but no toothbrush and no That's toilet. That's exactly right. And, yeah. <laughs> and that in itself has higher impact on your life and your ability to do any sort of work than yeah. whether or not you have it. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, reducing that to overcoming just a digital divide is, is, is somewhat simplistic for the kind of broader structural issues yep. that there are. Yeah, exactly. Right? Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening sound by Pottington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.